Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of 28 Days Later. I am your host, Sophie, joined as always by my lovely co-host and favored sister, Hannah. <laughs> Why, thank you. If you could see me right now, which you can't, I have a face mask that looks like someone cut the face off of a unicorn and then like kind of draped it across my face sort of like buffalo bill style stellar (laughs) so you're kind of doing like (laughs) i'm imagining you're like dwight in the office with the like uh ham over his face or i'm sorry with the it's not ham. That's Mean Girls. In the office, it's uh, the CPR yes, dummy's face. Yes, the CPR. It's exactly like that. And I can I mean, like that's an image I wish that we had. Photo. I can still talk and move my face, but I am moving my mouth like a little bit weird. So hopefully that's not super detectable. Um. So I have a story I want to tell you up top, which will actually relate to the movie we're discussing this week. Um, and you will see how momentarily, uh. So because of COVID, I'm not able to go and visit my clients. And so I have pretty regular phone calls with them. And especially when the weather is not too God awful, I like to go for a walk while I'm on the phone with my clients. I mean, before COVID, I was walking to and from work every day. I was walking around a lot during the day. And I found that during COVID and I'm working from home, I don't really move a whole lot during the day and my legs get stiff and my back hurts. And so Going for a walk on client calls is always like a nice excuse to get outside and stretch my legs without cutting into my work time. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks can empathize with the idea that I would love to be out walking way more. I just don't have time. So client calls are this really perfect space where I can go for a walk and be outside and stretch my body and be in the sun without taking away from my workday time. And so I was on this phone call with a client. I was out for a walk. I had only been outside for maybe 10 minutes. And I am walking down the street and I heard someone behind me go, hey, hey. And it's a pretty busy intersection. There's a bus stop and a bunch of other stuff. So at first I just assumed like I live in a city. They're talking to someone else. I'm used to hearing, you know, bits of other people's conversations. But I keep hearing it and it sounds like the person is following me. And this guy kind of runs up next to me and gets in my face a little bit. And is like, hey, trying to get my attention. So Mm -hmm. I say, hi. Uh, And I say, I'm on a, I'm on the phone. Like I, I can't talk on the phone. And he tells me his name. um, And I was like, I am on a work phone call. I can't talk to you right now. And he's like, I just got back from my rack and I just wanted to let you know that I think you're really attractive. And I like turn around to try to walk away because I'm just like, I don't need to be a part of this interaction right now. And he screams at me from behind me. Well, I just got all my VA money and have a ton of money. If you want to make some bad decisions, you'll know where to find me. And like, this has been rattling me all week, Hannah, because like not only... Most of our listeners, most of our female listeners especially, are probably familiar with and have experienced something incredibly similar to this probably more times than they can count. And there was something about the fact that I was on the phone with a client. I had made it very clear to him that I was on a work phone call. And the idea that, like, not only was it very important to him that he got to like dehumanize me and objectify me, but he didn't give a shit if he did that in a setting that like could harm me and my career. I -hmm. mean, like luckily I don't, I was on the phone with a client. Thank God I was on the phone with a client who just happens to be super interested in feminism. And we have a lot of really (laughs) intense conversations about feminism and catcalling and, toxic masculinity so like we were able to pivot and talk about it um but like I have other you know like that could have gone very differently if my client didn't have good boundaries you know like that could have been really really harmful um and as I'm telling the story I'm realizing like it was really really harmful right like I you know I talked about it with my fiance over the weekend and I was just like I haven't been able to get it out of my head since it happened I've been so upset And part of what makes me so upset about it is that it's not that unusual. Like that interaction is not that much worse 
or really worse at all than a lot of other interactions that I've had that you've had that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have had. Um, and I hate that my default when that stuff happens is to like be angry and then be like, oh, well, that's just how the world is and like keep moving. Um, mm-hmm. So the alternative, like I said, the alternative this week has been I've really been like sitting in my anger and discontent and frustration um, and really doing a lot of thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to share that story. And like I said, I think it will prove um, a kind of a useful and interesting filter as we go into the movie that we're going to talk about this week. Well, it's funny, too, because I remember when you first told me, you told me it like it was kind of like not funny, but you were definitely like laughing it off mm-hmm. like we do with most things like that. Um, and then it's funny to hear you talk about it now where like having had some time to like sit with it and sit in it and just be like, damn, yeah, it doesn't every single time and it doesn't ever get any easier and it always like catches up to you like in that same way of like oh whatever it's over now and like I just finished my like just go back and finish my call and whatever and then like you know Mm -hmm. when you tell someone else about it or start talking about it and you're like wait actually that was nuts (laughs) yeah and I think to your point like I think my default is to kind of like be angry but laugh it off right Mm -hmm. and and I think this is the first time in a long time that something that has happened and I did laugh it off in the moment, but I haven't been able to like clear it from my brain. And so I've just been kind of sitting with it being like, it's not funny and it's not normal. And it's so fucked that like we are all sort of programmed as women and sort of taught um, to like laugh it off or to appreciate the compliment or whatever. The idea that men think that is an appropriate way to talk to women is horrifying i'm not saying anything new it just huh it was an experience yeah well and just the fact that you're like trying to say like hey i'm on the phone right now like i'm working right now and it's like in that person's mind he's like but what i have to tell you about my life and my experience is the only thing that actually matters right now right my desire is the only thing that matters whatever you have going on is of no concern or value to me Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so. Which, to be fair, is, like, also how I feel when you talk, but, like. <laughs> wow. I'm kidding. Wow. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. So and on much that kidding. note. Oh, oh, Hannah, I know you are. <laughs> you sound so scared. You're like, wait, I'm just joking. It was a joke. <laughs> it's like you think I've never met you before. Um, so. Yeah, so let's, I guess, use that as a springboard to jump into our movie this week, uh, which I think I'll synopsize, Hannah, if you're cool with that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, as you guys know, we are belatedly finishing our Women in Horror Month and Black History Month in March, which works out fine because uh, March is Women's History Month. And so this week, we're covering a movie that was just released on Shudder this month, And that movie is called Lucky. Lucky was written by Bria Grant, who also plays the lead, and directed by Natasha Carmani. The plot of this movie is a young woman named May, who's played by Bria Grant. She's a writer. She does uh, self-help type books. And a lot of her self-help books are sort of about, like, women just need to, like, tough it up and go it alone and all this Mm -hmm. other stuff. You know, do it for yourself. It's kind of like... Uh, It has a real lean-in kind of quality to it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So the movie starts. Her writing career is not going great. She's kind of stressed out. She goes home to her husband, who seems really lovely, and they have a really nice night. In the middle of the night, she wakes up and hears a sound in the house, and she's afraid, and... She, oh, I'm sorry. That's not what happens. She wakes up and she's walking around their bedroom. She sees a man in the backyard. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. There's a man in the backyard. She is afraid. And she wakes up her husband. And her husband just very calmly says, oh, that's the man who breaks into our house every night. And from there on, we have this movie where May is living in a universe where every single night, 
a man breaks into her house and tries to kill her. And no matter what kind of harm she does to him, he keeps coming back. And the systems that are in place around her, like her friends and her family and her husband and law enforcement are not taking her concerns seriously, are not able to help her. Um, And so we sort of see like the trope of a final girl play out over and over and over and over again Mm -hmm. um, in that way. So uh, I really enjoyed this movie. I didn't know very much about it before it came out. I knew that it, that, you know, the, the, the killer was going to be a metaphor for something, but that's kind of all I knew about the movie. I had no idea that he was like coming back again and again in this way where people weren't acknowledging it. I didn't really have a much of an idea of plot. Um, but I really enjoyed this movie. Hannah, what was your experience of watching it like? Um, I also really enjoyed it. And like, I, it's funny cause ugh, I guess also I said like, I wasn't going to talk about this, but now I'm talking about it. We were going to do St. Maud. And we had our reasons for deciding not to do St. Maud. Um, but one of the things that I experienced watching that movie was, like, the whole movie. I was like, what is happening? And, like, when am I going to get it? Yeah. And it was so funny to go from watching that movie to watching this movie. Because this movie had a similar effect where the whole time I was watching it, I was like, okay, what's going on? Like, what's it going to be? But I had a completely different experience in this, where in this, I was, like, really enjoying the journey of finding out what was going on. Yeah. Um, and I was, like, right there with it. in Like, I was with it, with her in it. Like, I was all about it. Whereas, like, with the other movie, like, I had watched in preparation, I was just, like, I'm just confused and mad and I want this to be over. And so, like... With this, I was like, yes, all right, I'm in it. I'm I'm with it. Like, what's it going to be? What does this all mean? And, yeah, and, like, the more it went on for, like, the more I enjoyed it. And then, like, kind of, like, where it ended up, I also really enjoyed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I really liked that. Like, I knew it was going to be – I mean, yeah, I just, like – going into so many horror movies, especially ones that are written and directed by women – um, I kind of like expect for a lot of it to be allegorical in some way. Um, but yeah, so, but I wasn't sure like to what degree it would, that would be the case for this. So. Yeah. And I was curious if you recognize the woman who played May from another movie we've talked about on this very podcast. Uh, no. So it's really funny because um, she played the estranged girlfriend of the guy in After Midnight, which you hated. Um, <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. But I thought that was really funny as we started watching this movie. I was like, there are some ways in which this movie is very similar to that movie where like in that movie, the monster only shows up at night and no mm-hmm. one sees it but him. And it's like symbolic of his like grief and maybe substance abuse and sort of loss and things like that but then also it's a real monster and um and like as soon as this movie started I was like I wonder if any of this like idea came to her from doing that movie because so in some ways like it's a very it's a similar setup and I really liked that yeah I was thinking like um with this movie too like there was one moment where because also one thing I was really surprised by is like in this universe, like, she calls the police, like, every time, um, and they usually, and they always respond, and, like, uh, they're not the most helpful, but, like, I just assumed that, like, that that was going to end up being such a big part of it, was, like, her always calling the police, and then, like, nobody believing her, um, and it's funny, because since you mentioned, like, that movie, um, in, it was called After Midnight? Yes. Um, I was so scared. There was a moment in in Lucky where her friend gets killed, or at least we don't know if he's, she's killed, but injured by the assailant. And then when she then she like passes out attacking him, and when she wakes up, he's gone. And so I thought for sure I was like, oh no, this is gonna turn into like nobody believing her, and like all these like. Everyone's going to think that she did it and everyone's just be like gaslighting her. And I was kind of worried about that. And I think that also started happening with 
after midnight where everyone was like, well, no one is seeing it but you. Um, right. So I was so scared that's what was going to happen to her in this movie, too. But it's funny because that didn't really happen to her. <laughs> they were just uh, like, even though they're like super unhelpful, EMT was just like, oh, that guy? Yeah, he's gone. <laughs> That scene's, I mean, we'll get to that. That scene uh, and what happens immediately after the EMT talks to her is really bananas, but we'll we'll hold that for a bit. Yeah, and okay, let's talk about the killer himself because, you know, we don't know who he is, but there is something spectacular and genius about the, I mean, monster design, for lack of a better word, which is that the killer who keeps coming into the house He's wearing a mask, but the mask on his face is, it looks otherworldly. It doesn't really look like a mask. It does kind of, it kind of doesn't. What it reminded me of was when you have a dream and you see someone in your dream and in your dream, you're like, oh yeah, it's that person, obviously. And it might not be a person you've ever met, but like Mm. they look familiar to you in your dream. And then you wake up and you can't remember their face. Yeah, that's... Like, that's exactly what his face looked like. I did not put that together, but that's so true and such a great, like, added element of that, of the design. Wow, yeah, I, like, totally didn't really put that together, but that's exactly what it's like. It looks like his face is, like, blurred. It looks like she can't... the, The effect that it has, right, is that, like... Everything about him is so clearly in focus except his face, which just looks like it's not quite, not like, not all the pieces are there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's funny because, you know, like, um, I don't know if it's really confirmed or what, but some people think that, like, everyone in your dreams is, like, someone that you've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, people, like, our subconscious is not capable of creating faces just like out of nowhere um which is always something that's kind of like intrigued and and also creeped me out (laughs) like that everyone in your dream is someone that you've seen somewhere or been like in passing and your brain kind of like makes a note of it to save it for later so I feel like given where this movie kind of ends up that added element is like so cool yeah, 100%. Um, there was another really cool uh, piece that I liked, and I don't know if you caught this. Um, so there is sort of this reoccurring theme of broken glass. You know, in the beginning of the movie, I think it's the first scene or soon after when she's at home, she's looking at a plate that she takes out of the dishwasher and it has a big crack in it that basically mm-hmm. goes all the way down the plate. And she's able to break the plate in half. Yeah. And then when she's with her husband, there's a shard of glass on the coffee table and she kind of picks it up and is like, somebody could get hurt with this. And he's like, yeah. And then she just puts it back down and later the cop sees it too and says the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we then see, you know, when she's at her friend's house and she's looking out the door, there's like a crack in one of the panes of glass in the door. There's a scene later where there's a mirror that has a crack in it. Um, and all of this for me culminates in one of the scenes that I found to be the most effective and unsettling, which I don't know if you noticed. There's a scene after one of the times where she has, this guy broke into the house, she is able to mortally wound him, it would appear, and then he disappears. That's mm-hmm. the thing is, no matter what she does, if she looks away for a second, he disappears. And so she can kill him, and she turns around, and there's a puddle of blood, but he's gone. So that happens. She's covered in blood. She goes up to her bathroom to clean up. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I'm really glad because I was like, is that just me? Or like, I was like, is that just wait? wait, Yes. Okay. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So exactly. The way this is done is so good because you at first you can't tell if you're just if it's in your head. So in her bathroom, there is one whole wall above the sink that is a mirror And where that wall meets a corner, the corner is also a mirror. So you have basically like a a 90 degree angle where both edges are a mirror and she's leaning into it. So you have her reflection in both of those mirrors. And there is one of those like makeup 
old timey mirrors that women would use for makeup. That's like on a wire attached to the wall that you can kind of like pick up and extend and aim at your face. Yeah. And she's washing her face and it's a very extended scene of her washing her face and you're looking at all her different reflections. Her reflection in that little circle mirror doesn't match. Like yeah. it's, it's doing different things and it's not moving in time with the other mirrors. Yeah, I noticed that too. And it's funny because I at first was like, is it supposed to be doing that? And then I was like, is this like a continuity error or was this intentional? <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah, I mean, like it has to be intentional, right? Because they would have had to edit it in mm-hmm. for it to look different. But like you said, at first you can't tell because it's a different size mirror and it's at like a weird angle. You can't tell right away if it's just your eyes playing tricks on you or if it's doing something different. And it is. And I mean, I think so much of this movie ends up being about the kind of trauma that is inflicted on women. And I love the sort of recurring theme of, of broken glass or these, you know, mirror reflections that don't match. It's like we're, we're seeing the ways in which she and her life have been fragmented by mm-hmm. this trauma. And I think that is so beautiful just really beautiful yeah i i agree and also just sort of like the implication of how people in general but especially women how their experiences are framed and reflected back to them not always as they were experienced yes Mm mm-hmm Kind of like when we talked about Sweetheart um, and, like, our readings of uh, her friends thinking of her as, like, a not trustworthy person or something or, like, someone who had lied in the past um, and just how – and how, like, she internalized that over time. And I I didn't think of it really in the moment, but kind of now as we're talking about it, that – slight change and perspective shift to have like that mirror especially since it was like the vanity mirror was the one that was reflecting her like the most off um really I think sort of for lack of a better word reflects um just like how women find their own like women don't trust their own experiences and their own judgments because how, how so often when they explain them or when they share them with other people, they're not received as they mm-hmm. are. Um, or also just how, like, so many women don't see themselves in the mirror as they really are. Um, yeah. Just because of how much, like, outside influence and um, cultural norms kind of feed into our perception so much over time that, like, I remember you and I had a conversation about this one time where we were talking about how, like, I have this thing where I'm like, it would be really cool if just for, like, one day, for, like, five minutes or something, there was a way to let someone, like, see themselves through someone else's eyes for, like, five minutes or something. Mm -hmm. But just to see what you actually literally look like without your own, like, the own interpretations that we put onto our own reflection – like yeah. how crazy that would be. Um, but yeah, so I feel like the fact that it was like her makeup and vanity mirror was especially the one that was off, like kind of speaks to that as well. That's a, yeah, that's a really, really beautiful point. Um, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about how she interacts with different characters in the movie. So like I said, the first time this guy shows up, her husband is really, uh, calm about it and uh-huh. really seems like this has happened before. He's not surprised. He's expecting it. Um, but when the cops show up and say, have you ever seen this guy before? The husband says no. And then looks at her and is kind of like, like you, you, like he looks at her like, yeah, I know. I just told him we haven't seen him, but like, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, and then when they start, when the cops leave and it's time to like go about their day, He's acting like everything's normal and she's really upset. And he's basically like, I'm trying to help you, but like, I can't change it. This is just how things are. And um, then he says that he like can't be around her when she's like this. And he just leaves. And for the rest of the movie, he is staying with his parents because he's so upset with her that he can't stay with her. So 
Like, he has left her alone in a situation that he knows is patently unsafe for her. He knows the killer is targeting her specifically and he's just kind of there. Um, And he leaves her in that situation because the alternative is for her to challenge his perception of the world being like a good place where this is just how stuff is and we just keep going. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Well, and like just his response to everything, it was so funny because like I knew from the trailer that his initial response was just like, oh yeah, that's the guy who comes to kill us every night. Like, why are you acting weird about this? Um, I knew that was like his initial reaction. Um, But then I kind of just assumed that it would change or like become at least I don't know like I thought he would like explain more or just I just thought he would be better yeah <laughs> and instead he was as just like, we often think of men in our lives and men that we meet and strangers <laughs> yeah and then like just how casually and callously he was like Ugh, I don't have time to explain this to you or like why are you acting so weird about this and then when he just left I was like wow, I thought they were going to, like, go through this movie together. Instead, he was like, ugh, you're being so emotional. I think he even told her she was being crazy at one point, and then he left. Yeah, he, like, tells her to pull it together and, like, get a hold of herself. Yeah, it's like, all right, get out of (laughs) here. Get out of here, you. (laughs) Yeah, so we have that guy, what a gem, his name's Ted. And then we have this police officer who keeps coming out to the scene every time she calls, and... This the first the second time this guy attacks, she calls the police. It's the first time that she's uh, handling the police alone. And he's asking her all the same questions and she's getting really angry because she's like, I answered these questions yesterday. It's the same guy. I don't know why you keep asking me these. And he says, like, there's this protocol and I have to talk to the victim. And she says, who's the victim? And he says, that's you, (laughs) ma'am. And it's like such a again like I feel like we could this movie has so much in it we could really dissect everything but I love again we have this movie where we we are getting to see the way that society and power structures impose labels on people right Mm -hmm. like May does not seem to see herself as a victim. Like, she's very proactive. As soon as she realizes what's going on, she goes out to buy the materials to fix her broken window. She goes out to buy weapons. She makes a plan. Like, she never leaves her house. She keeps staying at her house, even though she knows he's going to keep coming back because she's not going to let him scare her out of her house. And yet all this cop can do is come and be totally ineffectual and label her a victim, which is not a label she chose for herself. Yeah. 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 Well, and that, that too was like later on when there's like EMTs and also, I don't know about you, but I was so bummed out. Like I was like, why do social workers in movies and TV are always portrayed as like the worst (laughs) i was like we can never catch a break like they're always the bad guy and everything um and there were two different social workers in this movie and they were both awful Um, hey i will i want to push back and say i don't think the social workers were awful but i do think that both of the social workers were working within a very standardized script where they were like, this is what I expect to be happening in the situation and those are the parameters I'm using, which I think unfortunately happens all too often, especially in situations when social workers are coming as part of a bigger like government entity, especially, right? Where it's like, I gotta get these questions answered. I got, And it's not because the social workers are bad people. They have like a very specified... Role I don't know. I and, think that one social worker... And have gotten really worn down. Yeah, but that one social worker, like, the first one, the woman was... Uh, May is saying, like, this is how I've been feeling, and I don't feel like anything is right anymore, and I don't know where I fit. And the social worker was just like, yeah, so I'm just gonna write, like, that you experienced... Um, I don't remember what she said, but she basically, like, didn't listen to anything she said didn't take anything she said into an account. It was just like, yeah, okay, I'm just going to write this. And then like, well, moved and, on. I feel like that's being a I terrible think, social worker. <laughs> well, I, well, what I think is interesting about that dynamic or that interaction is that it's clear that what the social worker, the social worker has come in 
decided that what's happening is intimate partner violence. Right. And nothing that May says can change her mind. And so to me, it felt less like, it's like a, I thought I found it to be really interesting. I'm not gonna say I'm not defending that social worker. She's not doing a good job and she's not doing her job properly. But I thought it was interesting from like a symbolic perspective that everything she's doing is she keeps asking. She's already like I said. She's decided before she got there what's happening. So she's only asking questions about what she think thinks happened. Yeah. And if May says something different. She just moves past it and keeps asking because she's already dis- again. It's like she has decided the narrative already. She's the cop was like, "You are a victim. Being angry is not going to help. You just got to stay calm and be vigilant and keep you know." Even though none of those things are helpful, she's like, "What do you mean, be vigilant? Like I've been being vigilant. I've killed this guy multiple times. I feel like." The social worker is doing the same thing where she has come in with a preconceived notion of what the situation is. Yeah. And she either isn't willing to or can't get outside of that box. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. And I think that's sort of how everybody approach everybody approaches mm-hmm. May. Like the EMTs approach her that way and the police approach her that way. Everyone's like, everyone is really just like trying to tell her how to be or like Mm -hmm. respond to her as if she's acting in a way that they are expecting her to be acting in this situation. Um, but yeah, I would just, I was bummed because I was like, oh man. (laughs) Yeah. It always be like that. (laughs) Well, okay. Let's talk about this EMT. Cause I thought that that like this movie, I think at its heart is a, is a dark comedy. Mm. Like it is, it is, it is very dark, but the comedy is quite funny and often disorienting. And I think in no scene is that more clear than when she has finally left her house. She's gone to stay with her sister-in-law, mm-hmm. um, who appears to be a single mom and her young son. And this guy, the killer, attacks and wounds, potentially kills her friend. But she and the boy are able to escape. The guy uh, chases her outside and they get in a confrontation and and he dies and she's left unconscious. So the EMT shows up. She comes to with a guy leaning over her. She doesn't know who it is. And Mm -hmm. again, it's like we know that it's probably a cop or an EMT. But just that visual of her like coming back to consciousness and there's a blurry man above her and she doesn't know who he is, is really effective. Um... And he, too, is sort of like he has a prescribed script. He's decided the information that he needs to get from her and needs to give to her. And that's what he's going to do, regardless of what she says. Um, And eventually he takes her inside. And so it's the EMT and the cop and a different detective and a social worker and someone else. And they are all asking her questions at the same time. And Mm -hmm. none of them are listening to her. They're all doing the same thing where they all have decided what this case is. And they're just going along their line of questioning. And then all of a sudden they all start singing their questions to her. (laughs) Um, It's, it's so fucking weird, but I really liked it. Yeah. I really, that was probably my favorite part too. And I also think that's when this like really leaned into like, like how weird it was gonna be, um, because mm-hmm. it's not. It's it's funny. Like in a in a horror movie, how you do kind of have more space to make the the general uh, conceit to be like a little more outlandish than than in other films. Like it because like this obviously reminded me a lot of like Happy Death Day too, since it also has like her not dying over and over again, but that like a person coming to kill her. Over yeah, and over and over the again. same killer over and over again. Yeah, exactly. And in mm-hmm. like in like Happy Death Day, it's like we we are told like this character is going to keep getting killed over and over and over again until she can figure out why, and like and we accept that we're like okay, cool, that's the rules. We're we're here for it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think like that scene of them all just questioning her and then like randomly singing. And just, like, also because the tracking and the sound was also kind of, like, off. Um, or at least that's how it felt to me. Mm-hmm. It became, like, e- like just, like, kind of, like, fully leaned into being, like, completely disorienting in that moment. Um, that, to me, is also kind of when it made us a, a step further from being, like, okay, we're going to set up a world for you. And 
and we want you to like accept the rules of this world for this movie um and also kind of shifted into like this is probably just gonna really go to like a weird place <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and like it's you're sort gonna of come when the total shift you've been having the whole time is like pushed all the way to 11 yeah exactly exactly and it's not like um yeah it's not as much like like, I don't know, there's always something in a horror movie where the suspension of disbelief is pretty outlandish compared to, like, if we're watching, like, a drama or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, this is that kind of marked when we're going from, like, just suspension of disbelief and otherworldly, like, creating a world to, like, we're just going for it. Like, we're going full weird. <laughs> yeah because like you said Come i mean there's a lot wonk. of stuff there's yeah there's a lot of stuff up to that that leans that way right i mean once for example once she knows that he's a person that's going to come to her house over and over again. She keeps arming herself with weapons. And we have several scenes where he has the exact same weapon as her like whatever weapon she gets he also has like she can't ever get the upper hand on him no matter how hard she tries um which is really interesting. And then we get that scene with all the singing. And then we move into a set piece that I think is probably one of the most effective and and clear in the movie. I think this is a movie that is not trying to be coy with what its messaging means and what it's trying to tell you and what the killer is standing in for. Yeah. But this is the sequence where the movie is like, in case you missed it, this is what's happening. Um, Wait, do you want to tell you... us what happens, Hannah? Okay, yes, because then I can kind of go into it, because I was going to mention one thing before that. Yeah. So, in the in the period of the film where we get that moment, like, there's also, she, she gets in her car, and... So we've moved to the parking garage, right? Or not yet? Well, not yet. I'm going to get there. Okay. But basically, okay. like, when she's having this, like, really jarring experience with all the different... Um, like cops and EMTs and everybody um, that one of the cops says to her, well, nothing's really been the same since the parking garage. Right. And she's like, what? I never told you about a parking garage. And the cop says, well, it's all the same. Like you were in a parking garage, you heard a noise and nothing's been the same since. And she's like, what? And then when she goes to leave, she, when she's leaving, cause it's all too disorienting. Um, she gets in her car and she turns her car on and then she's just in the parking garage. And when she gets out of the car at the parking garage, there is another killer there already. Um, oh, this one looks a little different, like in sort of like in uh, like stature than the one that's mm-hmm. been following her. And then she ends up finding her assistant yeah. is, is being attacked by this particular assailant. But and, this guy has the same face, right? It's the same weird, yeah, like, like blurry, thing. plasticky face. Yeah. Yes, which also, I don't know if you noticed this too, but it looked kind of like a plasticky, like, Halloween, kid's Halloween mask from, like, the yeah. 30s or 40s, not 40s, 30s, like, 40, uh, like, 50s or 60s, those weird ones um, that are really old and creepy looking. And um, her nephew had one in his room hanging on the wall. Oh, I didn't notice that. Hannah, good eye. Yeah, because I think it was kind of, but his was like a little more like clear that it was a mask and like a little more mm-hmm. childlike. And so I kind of feel like there there was some commentary there that like, yeah, if they don't intervene in time with him, mm-hmm. he'll also, you know, grow into one of these men with masks. But yeah, um, I had this thought too of like when they when she first got to the breaking garage and found her assistant and they both were like, what is happening? Like this has been happening every day for like a week. And it also just made me laugh because I was like, I do like this idea of like, for like, uh, for us as viewers, like watching, especially people who love horror movies and watching a ton of horror movies, like this idea of like someone in a horror movie, like realizing it or, or not realizing it, but being like, why is this happening? <laughs> like, like refusing to accept the conceit to go back to your earlier point. Yes, exactly, exactly. Like, I really liked how when it was a conversation between the both of them talking about it, I was like, how funny to think of it too, of like, 
two female characters in a horror movie being like, this weird thing keeps happening to me every day where someone's trying to kill me in like different <laughs> ways, like every day. Yeah. And I don't understand why this is happening. I just thought that was really funny and a great, a great moment of like, also just like sort of reflecting on like we, the audience and people who enjoy horror movies, especially mm-hmm. like that, you know, like we don't really stop to think like, Oh, I wonder what they're like, what they feel right now when they're realizing this right. is all happening. Right. Um, but then, you know, shortly after that, we get the scene that I think you're talking about when um, the the uh, sort of like analogy being painted by this story becomes like completely clear beyond all doubt um, where they are basically running through a parking garage um, and the parking garage also has some really cool like blue and red lighting awesome Um, lighting but it's set up like you know it's a dark scary parking garage it's empty like you know if any of you have ever had the experience like I'm sure a lot of us have where you are getting off work and it's late and you have to walk to your car and it's just a dark parking garage with no one around that's kind of the vibe that's happening except for this cool like neon lighting yeah like emergency lighting Mm -hmm. um and basically as they're trying to work together to stop this one guy they start realizing that all around them, different women are being attacked by different versions of this, like, faceless man. Mm-hmm. And not only do we get, like, a really cool, but also, like, I at one point was like, oh, kind of had to, like, close my eyes and shake my head for a second because it was also kind of hard to watch, like, this sequence of just, like, woman after woman getting, like, slammed to the ground or... Yeah. Like, chased into a dark part of the parking garage. Like, just woman after woman after woman. And it was yeah, very The effective. fight choreography is really impressive, but that makes it even harder to watch. Yeah, absolutely. It was, like, once that all kind of, like, once you kind of, once it washes over you and sinks in, it's like, oof, this is dark. <laughs> like, this is hard to watch. Um, but, yeah, and then they have, like, kind of a, they have a conversation between the two women um, where the assistant is like, we have to help them. And the, and May is like, we can't like, there's too many of them. And she says, I helped you because I know you. This is just how things are. Yeah. She said, this is just how things are now. And if you can't accept that. So she's now saying to, she's saying to Edie exactly what everyone said to her. Yeah. And she like, she says to her, and I also couldn't help but think too that, um, that so far in the movie, um, a lot of the other women that we saw being attacked by these like faceless men, um, were women of color. And so I also couldn't help but kind of feel like that some aspect of their conversation was also like related to that of her being like, I helped you because I know you. But, like, other than that, there's just, like, too much else going on for me to try to help everybody. I have to just, like, look out for myself. Um, well, it's important. I guess if you're going to bring that up, it is important to note that her assistant and her friend who were attacked are also women of color. So, yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. It's, like, every yeah. other woman that we've seen so far besides May. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. I, I, because, yeah, I thought that in a lot of the women in the parking garage, it was hard to tell because of the lighting. So I can't say for certain, but I did notice that quite a few of them were also women of color. Um, oh, I if you had if you had asked me, I'm pretty sure a lot of them were white. Oh, okay. Well, I guess maybe it was just like a, a decent cross section. Yeah, but there were a lot of white women in that parking garage. I just thought it was like, I don't know. I found there's I personally found there to be some interesting element as well of like it being like the white woman telling the other woman like I can. I can help you because I know you. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I have to take care of myself. Yeah. And like. Yeah. Yeah. And there being this idea of like us versus them within the context of the women working together. Yeah. And really quickly, before we get to the part where they are seeing all these other women, when May first help first helps Edie and the two of them run away and they're hiding 
Edie says, I don't know what I did to deserve this. Do you? Like, I love the idea that, and, and there's been this plot line where we find out that May at some point was unfaithful to her husband. And so she thinks that this is happening to her because she was unfaithful to her husband. Mm -hmm. And obviously what we learn going forward is that like, of course these women don't deserve this. But like they say in the movie, like this is just the way it is. Yeah. Um, and so, so we get this really, like you said, this really cool and trippy and weird and still very hard to watch sequence in the, um, in the parking garage and, and Edie gets killed and, May just has to take off running. And as soon as she leaves Edie, she is pushing other women out of the way. I mean, she she doesn't make any kind of effort to help any of the other women who are being attacked. Yeah. Um, so we get back to her house um, and we have our final encounter with the killer. Um. And this was maybe my favorite part of, I mean, I don't know. It's really hard to say. I watched this movie with my fiance yesterday and I have not been able to stop thinking about it. And I almost, I didn't need to rewatch it for the movie because I had very copious notes, but I almost rewatched it before we recorded tonight because I liked it so much. I was like, I just want to like experience that movie again. It was so fascinating. Yeah. But this time when she kills the killer, she takes his mask off. Mm-hmm. And we have this really awesome, very trippy effect where his face just keeps changing. Like he just, his face, you know, he, he changed, his face changes various ethnicities, different ages, different face shapes, facial hair, eye color, like. Yeah, I noticed too that even before she took his, got the mask like all the way off that the face was changing underneath of it. Under the mask. And I was like, damn, that is. That's fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. It was really awesome. Um, I want to read a quote. So the local like independent magazine here in Kansas City is called The Pitch. We're a big fan of them. And um, this is actually how Jeremy and I became aware of this movie. The Pitch had written an article, a review of it. Um, Brock Wilbur, who is the editor of The Pitch, had written a review called Shared Trauma Manifests Itself as a Serial Killer in Lucky. And I wanted to share this quote. Lucky has a lot to say about the world and how when trauma and abuse exist on such a universal scale, any attempt to fight back can seem futile or even offensive to the some to the same people that are being victimized. Making that societal issue in a slasher horror comedy allows an audience that may not have processed this under straightforward terms to suddenly identify with how othering that de- Sorry, with how othering and denial have shaped our culture. Um, and I love this idea, right? That like the stuff that that May experienced with the whole movie was horrifying and upsetting to her. And it was really frustrating for her and for the audience when the system couldn't help her. But when presented with other other women's experiences, she she couldn't like it was too much and she couldn't do anything about she chose not to do anything about it she couldn't face it um and and the idea that her friend was like her assistant was like we can you know we can help them we can do it we should do this we should do this and she was just like are you nuts yeah like no we can't um i just thought like i will link to that article it has a great it has a great review um for folks that are interested but uh i just found this movie so impressive yeah especially because you can tell in its uh execution that it's probably like a lower budget movie um and i don't know when it was filmed but based off the way it was filmed it could have also been filmed during covid and i wouldn't necessarily be able to tell because there weren't too many scenes with like lots of large groups or anything right Um, except the uh, book signing i guess yeah other than that um but yeah like I don't know I thought it was very impressive too just given for like what it was working with also um and then it's funny because I also watched um I was also I watched this and then I finished the HBO documentary series uh Pharaoh versus Allen mm-hmm. which I don't know if, if any of our viewers have watched um but a great 
portion of the final episode kind of goes beyond just the story of um, Dylan Farrow, but also just sort of talks about the ways in which our society and especially our media has had a long history of like silencing women and silencing like and normalizing trauma that women experience. Mm -hmm. And so to watch this movie and then go watch that, I was just like, boof, like, because finishing that, I felt a little bit like, I felt like finishing that documentary series a little bit. I was like, wow, now I feel like May where I'm like, wow, this is just how it is now. And there's nothing we can do. Like, I was just like, Mm. fuck, (laughs) that was a dark, uh, super dark um, double feature that I do not recommend. Although I do think that documentary (laughs) uh, series is really, really good. Um, And it talks a lot about like the different ways that the case between Mia Farrow and Woody Allen had much larger implications on family court and uh, like, family services in general. So I highly recommend it. Um, But yeah, I was just like, to have these two back to back was really quite something because it was like so much that, that this movie was, was referencing in its visuals and in its storytelling. I was then like watching also like played out in, in like historical events and contexts, like in this other documentary. So I was just like, damn. Yeah. It really do be like that. (laughs) That's actually really funny because I also had an unintentionally appropriate double feature. So I watched this movie with my fiance yesterday afternoon. And then I uh, I have some friends that watch horror movies together on Zoom. Um, And we had decided to watch a horror movie last night. And I was kind of like, hey, I'm in the mood for like a 90s or 2000s like thriller or sci-fi. I want something kind of like hokey. Um, And so I was poking around and we settled on a movie which none of us had seen. We watched the 2000. um, Oh, my gosh. Why can't I remember his name? What's the name of the guy that did Starship Troopers? Paul Verhoeven. We watched a hollow man. (laughs) Have you seen Hollow Man? No, I'm not I'm not even familiar. Okay, so it just for like the briefest of synopses for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's about the, this government uh, project that's trying to basically like figure out how to make people invisible. They're testing on animals and the tests aren't going well, the government's going to shutter it. And so the like really cocky head scientist played by Kevin Bacon is like, "Go ahead and make me invisible. We can test it on me." And then they can't get him to come they can't make him visible again like they can't they haven't been able to phase him back and then he just becomes this like monster you know he like he uh there's a woman who lives across the the alley from him that he always like peeps on her through her window and he like breaks into her apartment and sexually assaults her and he kills a dog and he like it's horrifying and I was telling them about this about Lucky before we watched it and then I was like I didn't even mean to do this but how did I go from watching Lucky to literally watching a movie about like what a privileged shitty white man would do if he had no face and just had like impunity to do whatever he wanted um it was it is a double feature that I would recommend if if you have the time and space for it, because I think those movies have a, an interesting conversation <laughs> with each other. Um, and Hollow Man is just like a pretty awesome uh, sci-fi thriller. But, uh, you know, yeah, content warning for sexual assault and pretty brutal animal violence. Uh, yeah. And like the effects are super gory. So there's some like really just wild stuff in there. But uh, you also get to see... Uh, a lot of Kevin Bacon, but before he goes evil, it gets ruined later when he's evil, and then you feel bad about enjoying seeing his butt. Um, <laughs> well, you I also can't stand see... for any movie that makes me feel bad about seeing Kevin's butt, Kevin Bacon's well, butt. Well, Hannah, I don't know if this is a good or bad time to tell you that uh, when they first make him invisible and he's not evil yet, they can only see him by wearing infrared goggles, and you get, like, uh, full frontal infrared Kevin Bacon. Whoa. So later I was like, I can't believe this movie made me hate Kevin Bacon's penis. <laughs> yeah, that is a bummer. 
You basically <laughs> see like his whole penis in Friday the Thirteenth, also. Yes. <laughs> um. Welcome so, yeah. back to Hannah and Sophie's podcast about the number of movies where you can kind of see Kevin Bacon's dick. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the uh, six plus inches of Kevin Bacon, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Hannah, how many Bloody Marys out of five would you give Lucky? Um, I think I would give this movie four Bloody Marys. Um... Although, I almost felt like it would need to be with, like, Clamato juice or something. Something, like, even thicker. Because there was so much blood in this movie. And it was always just, like, so much thick blood pooling everywhere. Um, the smell had to be awful. Oof. But, um, yeah, I think I would give it, like, a solid four. Maybe, like, a four Bloody Marys and, like, um, a little shot glass to accompany it with, like, tequila or something. I think that's perfect. Um, I'm going to shock the world and give this movie a five! I swear! (laughs) Someday we're going to watch a movie that I don't like. Uh, I promise I'm not always this nice of a grader, but, like, damn, we've watched some real good shit the last couple weeks, you guys. I can't even stand it! Um, Yeah, I'm going full five. I love this movie. Did you? No. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> when we record our next episode, I will give you my rating for a St. Maud, and I feel confident it will be less than five based on Hannah's review. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I I feel, I, I you know, I think I said when we did an episode about Promising Young Woman that, like, I I was like, okay, I know this movie came out technically in 2020, but I it came out, like, a week before the end of the year. I'm counting it as 2021. It's going to be my number one horror movie of the year. And I remember watching this and being like, okay, well, this would probably be number one in any other year, but because of Promising Young Woman, this is going to be number two. And I feel great about a year where it's only March and we already have Promising Young Woman and Lucky. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding me? Seriously. I am just like full to the brim with joy to have this movie what are you in my gonna life, do if and they, I can't wait to watch it again. What's going to happen if they figure out a way to, like, get Candyman in theaters? Your brain is just going to, like, explode. Dude, I feel pretty confident we're going to get Candyman in theaters this fall. Like, I'm I'm putting my name on it now. Like, we're, people are going to be semi-vaccinated. I, I don't know. I'm on it. I'm on it. And I'll be sitting there front row opening night. All my masks on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's funny that you should bring up Candyman because that's actually kind of a segue into our in ladyer news, which I've been saving for weeks. Um, so while we were together in Delaware, I don't know if you can remember back that far, almost a month ago in mid-February, mm-hmm. Tanan arrived Do, who is an amazing horror writer. She was in... Uh, Horror Noir is one of the talking heads. She teaches the class at UCLA, The Sunken Place, that I'm currently taking um, online through Masterclass. Um, and she, there was a press release February 18th that Shudder and AMC have greenlit an untitled black horror anthology series. Tanana Rivedu and her husband, Stephen Barnes, who's also a writer, are both going to write on it. Um along with uh, Ezra C. Daniels, Victor Laval, and Al Letson, who I love. He's a journalist that I really, really like. Um, and Dr. Robin Means Coleman, who wrote Horror Noir, is going to, uh, let's see, she's going to consult on it. And Ashley Blackwell of Graveyard Shift Sisters is also going to be a producer on the franchise. Holy moly. So I am so freaking excited for this anthology. They haven't put out like any um, details about it, but there is a quote from the general manager of Shudder that says, when we saw the first cut of our horror noir documentary, we realized there was a huge untapped reservoir of great black horror stories that needed to be told and an extremely talented group of writers and directors ready to tell them. While the documentary was a look back at the history of black horror, this anthology is a showcase for the future and will introduce audiences to fantastic new stories and characters. That's like a 
first of all, that whole list was like a dream team. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't know sports, but you know when people get all excited about the Bulls when it was like, or was it the American yeah. basketball team? Whatever. It's like that. <laughs> it's like the 96 Bulls or the 95 Bulls something, or the something, something. 90-something Bulls. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, it's going to be like that. That's how I feel about the Clippers, like, six or seven years ago, but. <laughs> Ugh, this fish will not stop talking about basketball. <laughs> Since I'm clearly such an expert. She is. Um, well, Hannah, I feel like we've done a good job. We uh, we dodged a real bullet, it sounds like. And uh, for the next episode, I will give you guys, we'll start our next episode with, like, a two-minute review of St. Maud, and we can both tell you how many Bloody Marys we would give it. Uh, it's probably not going to be five, but that remains to be seen. With Sophie, um, you never it, know. Yeah, I'll be like, I hated it. Five stars. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you would like to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at the number 28 days lady underscore ER, or you can send us an email at 28 days later at gmail.com. We would always love to hear from you. And if you write us a note, we might even read it on the show. Um, Hannah, I know that, you know, we always say a lot of things during these shows. We kind of ramble on. But there's one thing that we really, really always want to hammer home to the listeners. Um, What is that? We just want everybody to make sure to always pee after sex.